If you understand the neurophysiological mechanisms of acupuncture, then you can definitely be able to explain, I think, any system of acupuncture, as well as any outcome that you see produced by acupuncture. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I love doing this work. It's a privilege to be able to earn a livelihood doing something that brings me challenge and brings me joy. There's a benefit that comes to us when we do work that has meaning, helps others, and allows us to deepen an understanding of our own heart and mind. Many of us caught into the idea that the practice of medicine is a kind of sacred encounter. We are working with the fundamental essences of being alive and self-aware. Our work matters. It can bring both benefit and, if unskillfully applied, can bring some harm. For those with an inquiring spirit, our work will supply us with puzzles, contradictions, and grist for the mill for the length of our days. I am aware on a daily basis of the blessings I have of being able to practice East Asian medicine. But recently, in the absence of patience, I've noticed something else. I've mentioned in a previous podcast that I sleep better. There is this odd sense of relief and evaporation of pressure. Without a daily practice, I found myself feeling lighter. Unburdened is the word that comes to mind. I become aware of having shouldered a hidden sense of burden that I didn't know was there. Having this in my awareness does not diminish my work. I hold no grudge or resentment. This sense of burden is not the enemy. Neither does it mean I've been doing things wrong. I think it comes with the territory, but it's a part of my internal landscape that I've not inhabited, let alone consider exploring. Many of you are probably familiar with the work of Carl Jung. Jung talks about how we all carry a shadow side, the parts of ourselves that we label, not me. It's part of how the human psyche is put together. We see it in the most fundamental of Chinese medicine ideas, the Taiji the symbol of yin and yang that reminds us that the whole of this formed world is an unbroken continuum of light and dark, seen and unseen, yin and yang are not separable, although it's easy to imagine it that way. We live in a world of polarity and have a tendency to inhabit one side or the other. That which we don't inhabit, it goes into shadow. It's out of awareness. We don't see it or feel it, but its influence on us remains. This now revealed sense of burden brings with it a deep feeling of relief. It's like being able to allow a deep inhalation after not realizing that I've been holding my breath. I feel like I'm standing more solidly on both of my feet. It makes me wonder about hidden burdens my patients may have that if named and allowed into the light might bring some integration and perhaps unlock gifts and resources. I don't think we get to do the kind of work we do without some recognition that we are inviting the dark when we seek to bring more light. I'd go so far as to say that our own suffering and brokenness is a part of what has drawn us to the work that we do. Our culture glorifies doctors as intelligent, capable, and somehow a little bit superior. But if you look back to the mythology of many cultures, you'll see the healer is not whole, but rather wounded. We can live an entire life disconnected from that wound, but then we are cut off from the resources 
and perceptions that it has to offer. There are those who say the ability to heal comes from that wound, from being in touch with it, from allowing what it holds. I suspect we all have areas of our work that carry a deep feeling of burden. I've recently spoken with some practitioners who are weary from the care they bring to patients who in turn abuse them because they want something like maybe a baby. And putting that deep demand on a practitioner can bring a heavy price if you give a damn. I've talked with practitioners who find the business aspect of their work to extract a heavy price on their spirit. Others of us struggle with the vacillations of self-worth. For me, part of the burden is that I care. And I'm discovering that I need to be cautious when I care more about my patient than they do for themselves. It's easy to imagine medicine as a profession that provides answers and solutions. After all, that is what we are selling. And if you don't believe me, go take a look at your website and you'll see what you have for sale. It's over there listed under conditions treated. But the more shadowy side of practicing medicine is that we don't have solutions. However, we can help our patients to engage more fully with resources within them that they didn't know they had. This isn't a journey for the faint of heart, and even more, it requires that we can inhabit a wider spectrum of our own experience. We talk about Jing, Qi, and Shen. We talk about Tian, and Di. Our work here as humans is to create something of value and worth as we're ground like wheat on the grindstones of heaven and earth. Our work is to recognize both the light and the shadow that the light casts, to hold both as expressions of an unbroken unity. It's hard in a world that appears to be built on polarities to see the wholeness. Maybe all we get is a glimpse from time to time. I invite you to make friends with that part of your practice that feels burdensome. It just might be a potent way to be more helpful to the people you seek to serve. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. 
By switching to AccuFast needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one month grace period on your new Jane account. I was going to say it's an age old question about how acupuncture works, but it's really not. The Chinese seem clear about it, but us Westerners, we are deep into the process of working that out. In a moment, we're going to be getting into a conversation on a particular perspective that sees acupuncture as being intimately connected to the neurological system. The Chinese classics don't have a lot to say about neurology. In fact, the Chinese classics don't have much to say about nerves. However, we're not living in the Chinese classics. We're living in modern Western culture. And this conversation takes a look at acupuncture, its effect on the nervous system, and we might learn a thing or two about qi along the way. Cordino, welcome to Geological. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you. I got a I got a good friend that I've known forever since I was in acupuncture school, David Lerner. And David Lerner said, you got to get Michael Cordino on your podcast. So, uh, hey, David, this is a shout out to you. Hey, David. Nice hearing from you again. <laughs> so, Michael, how long have you been at acupuncture? How long have you been doing this stuff? You know, I've been studying and involved in it, I'd say, for almost 30 years. I've been licensed since 1995. So I was one of the newbies, you know, jumped in there early. Back in the 90s, like there were better things to do than acupuncture. Whatever drew you to this? 
You know, I was actually born with a congenital heart defect. And my father is a retired Superior Court judge now, but at that time was a very well-known litigator. So he's very good at trial work. And I think that with my pre-existing heart condition and my father being who he was, doctors would never sign off and allow me to exercise. I was always prohibited from exercising. So when I turned 18, first thing I did, I could sign my own signature and went right into martial arts. And through Kung Fu, I was introduced to Chinese medicine. At that time, I was in pre-med at Seton Hall University, molecular biology. And I got introduced to Chinese medicine and Kung Fu, and I just fell in love with it. And I just, it just really took me up. I just loved the whole philosophy, everything. And that's how I was first, first introduced to Chinese medicine. It's always amazing to me the paths that especially us Westerners wound our way into this. I mean, these days, I think kids are actually coming out of school and it's like, oh, yeah, acupuncture, it's a career. But 90s, acupuncture, what the hell is that? When I told my father I was going to <laughs> get my master's degree in traditional Chinese medicine and How'd he's Sicilian judge, he was like... He, everyone thought I was crazy. He didn't even say goodbye to me when I traveled across country. Everyone thought I lost my mind, right? When I was in the school, I was like, you know, the youngest one by probably 10 years plus, right? You know, I didn't really wasn't sure how acupuncture worked at the time. Funny, because where I'm at right now is a complete 180 degree turn on that. But my father and people would ask me, how does acupuncture work? I had no answers for him, but I just knew I wanted to be in this profession. I loved the philosophy. I loved everything about it. It really drew me to it. That is like the $6 million. Well, when I was a kid, we said $6 million question. Now it's probably $18 million question with inflation. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But but that's the big question, isn't it? How does acupuncture work? I mean, we get this from our patients all the time. I, I think if we're at all paying attention ourselves, we're asking ourselves, how the hell does this stuff work? Because we can see some amazing things. and But explaining it is another thing. So it sounds like you've got some ideas here. Oh, yeah, Michael. That's one of my specialties. And that's a big drive that I'm doing in 2020, which is trying to educate our profession and give them the communication tools and the language skills to communicate what it is we do in 21st century medical sciences. Because one thing I've done, and that was the beginning of my journey into neuropuncture, I love asking questions. One of the questions I asked was, what if? What if the energetic model is BS? What if the energetic model was mistranslated? What if what we're feeling is a nerve transmission. And then I said, what if, and jumped down that rabbit hole. And I absolutely really dove into the neurophysiology and got strongly introduced to the neuroscience arena and applied all what I was studying and research I was involved in to the acupuncture classical model. And then the light bulb goes on. And that's what practitioners consistently tell me and give me feedback that when they're studying neuropuncture, that this light goes on at a time when there's training there. Yes, I get it. Oh, okay. Well, we, you know, kind of still resistant. And then the light goes on and they're like, got it. And that's what happened to me in neuroscience and neurophysiology really clearly, I think can explain all of acupuncture's phenomenon from infertility, mental health, pain management, you name it, whatever it is. If you understand the neurophysiological mechanisms of acupuncture, then you can definitely be able to explain, I think, any system of acupuncture 
as well as any outcome that you see produced by acupuncture. And I think the most simplest and the easiest correlation to really galvanize that acupuncture is neuroscience is dachi. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What is dachi? Our patients feel a dachi sensation. So they're in different kinds of dachi. And there's a list that's been reported from the link shoe for over 2000 years, almost 2,500 years, right? This is consistently being spoken about, right? Dachi sensation. In the link shoe, it says that if the patient does not feel a dachi sensation, then the treatment is rendered useless. So now there's this real strong link to inserting a fine needle, stimulating it to the point where the patient feels a sensation. Thousands of years ago, they didn't understand ion channels and potassium channels and the polarization of nerves. Of course not, right? We learned that maybe 200 years ago. But 2,500 years ago, they observed it. And they were able to see things and reproduce certain outcomes with dachi sensations. And now we know that, and I wrote this in my first book, that every single dachi sensation from heaviness, dullness, achiness, a little pinprick, cold, hot, fullness, distension, ants crawling on the skin can all be confirmed by stimulating a specific afferent fiber. So when our patient feels something, we know then for a fact. It's because we created a little chemical soup or we're stimulating some little fibers and it's communicating with the central nervous system and telling the patient that there's a needle in the skin we're stimulating. And that alone, I think to me, starts to open that door. Okay, that's neuroscience right there we just talked about. And that's that's not true. It's neurophysiology Neurophysiology. that you're talking about. So I want to get into this, but before I do, here's another thing, another big question mark in the acupuncture world, like the acupuncture meridians, right? The channels. Right. I mean, there's even people, even in China these days, there's like, oh, the meridians aren't real. Just, you know, forget that. There's other folks that are like the meridians are, you know, the energetic or there's some kind of interface between energetic and physiology. And it's, you know, it's part of our structure that's embryological. I mean, there's all kinds of ideas. I'd love to get your sense. What are the channels? Where are these meridians? How's it work? Great, great question, Mike. And I actually have webinars dedicated to this topic in my platform because it's so important that we understand, right, exactly things like that. Okay, so let's talk about this. So, all right, the energetic model, okay, meridians, where does those terms even come from? When people want to say, this is a meridian, what I always ask them is, what exactly are you referring to? What are you asking me? Are you asking me about the pathway? Are you asking me what's mentioned in the classics versus the books? Soleil de Marant, the man that created the energetic model in the early 1900s, he's the one that coined Meridian. He's the one that coined energy, and he's the one that coined point. All the physicians prior to him, and there were physicians that this been documented since the 1600s. There were physicians from Europe going over to China studying acupuncture, without a doubt. I've been to the Shanghai Museum of of, uh, Traditional Medicine, and there's a whole panel of doctors from the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s that were all studying and kind of, you know, poking their mind in what's going on with these needle insertions. And all the physicians prior to Soli de Moran always translated Jing Lo and Mai, which are the terminologies that the terms that we use, right, as pathways networks and channels interesting right you know networks and path i like pathways in particular that really that resonates for me i mean that sounds like my experience of what these things actually are well it's not only experiential think about this okay so 
if you look at that term being translated as, as pathways, networks, and channels, okay, 2,500 years ago, what did they know about the human body? 2,500 years ago, I'm, I'll bring that reference up for the Ling Shu, Huang Di Neijing, 500 BC, roughly, right? 500 BC was Socrates, Hippocrates, Alexander the Great, Egyptian Empire, Aramaic medicine, Greece, right? These empires were all growing. What did they see in the world with anatomy and physiology? They actually had very similar beliefs all throughout the world. And those beliefs were that humans needed food, right? You take food away from humans, they may live maybe three weeks, right? Four weeks. Okay, you take water away from humans, they last maybe 10 days. Okay, hold their nose and hold their mouth. <gasps> they die in a minute, right? So that essential invisible air that people inhale must be so important. And when they inhale, Egypt confirms this, and so does Arabic with prana being clearly translated as breath. And chi as air, that when we inhale, that air goes somewhere. And when they did dissections, when you occlude or when you open up an artery, the arteries go vacuous after death. The veins hold the, the blood because of the valves. So when you open up an artery, the carotid artery, very visible, the subclavinal veins and the arteries that run down into the legs and the arms, you incise that, they're hollow after death. So think about them 2,500 years ago, coming up with this philosophy, seeing people inhale, chi being this air, the character even shows the vapor on top, right? And that that is this essential. And then when you look at pathways and networks and channels correlated to Jinglo and Mai, and then the vascular system, that there are hollow pathways. And the link Shu even talks about collaterals that are visibly seen with the naked eye. That's not invisible energetic pathways. And, and I like that you brought up that China says that because that's an absolute truth as well, is that the Chinese will always say they even put meridians and energy in their books to appease the Western practitioners. It's not for them. They don't look at the medicine that way. It's very mechanical. It's very anatomical. And it's a powerful system that neuromodulates our nervous system which is unlike any modality in the world. What's really interesting about this is I have been in other discussions about the, the pathways. I like that term, the pathways. And are they actually my, like blood pathways? Are they these other kind of pathways? And I didn't know that in a dead body, the arteries would be empty. Yes. I could see you opening up an artery and going, whoa, nothing in here. Must be That's that. That's where it goes. That's where that air goes. So I do cadaver training with my members and my practitioners, and I will specifically do that. And I even have my videos online where I'll show them, look, here's the carotid. Look how hollow it is. That's what Huato was looking at, right? You know, that's what those doctors were looking at. And, and it's, it's been confirmed that the Chinese were definitely doing dissections. Without a doubt, that's a misnomer that they were not. That's not true at all. They were doing dissections. It was documented. Well, human, humans are just curious, right? Exactly. 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 And, and just like the West was doing it with grave diggers, right? They're picking up in the middle. They're going to find a way to do it, right? Maybe it was taboo to do it. I'm sure some physicians were like, let me get this guy and just check stuff out inside. There's always the outliers. Absolutely. Right. What's going on over here? I'm curious. Right. You know, and they're asking that same question. What if? So when you cross those over now, vascular system and nervous system, I think that is Jing Lo and Mai. Absolutely. You know, the, the nervous system carries the dachi sensations. The nervous system's communicating with the brain that controls everything. We now know that different hand techniques is 
comparable to different frequencies stimulating the nerve, and that different frequencies can target different receptors in the brain. So they may not have known that neuroanatomical pathway, but they were activating it whether they realized it or not. And we know that there's blood circulation with, with acupuncture. So you know, we can't control the blood flow, like make it reverse or, or go in this opposite direction, but we can increase blood circulation and manipulate it to some extent. Well, and you can open up places where it's stagnant. Absolutely. Works really well for the acupuncture works really well for moving stuff around. Absolutely. This is cool. So you, you've got one foot, you're like in the classics, you got this other foot, you're in the cadaver lab. Yes. You're a little bit yeah. like Pony Chong, aren't you? <laughs> Oh, Pony Chang. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We just did a neuroscience podcast uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh-huh. You guys, you guys are kind of looking at the same stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think we are. He was, it was him, myself, Dr. Ayla Wolf, and Dr. Uh, Clay Shu. And we were all talking about neuroscience acupuncture. And I think, you know, this is really starting to be more embraced. And I hope it is for our profession, and I teach this vigorously, that if we don't confirm and absolutely own neuropuncture or acupuncture, I call it neuropuncture, but acupuncture is neuroscience, and we are modulating the nervous system, everyone out there that's practicing outside our profession is saying that they're going to own it, right? They're going to wind up taking it from us. So we need to own that, master that, and pull acupuncture back into the center of medicine away from the outskirts of it where it is now. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Okay. So I would love to have you walk me through a clinical case with like a foot in each of these worlds. Sure, sure. Okay. okay. I'd love to have a case and I'd love to hear it from like, I don't care, a five element, a TCM, a Dr. Tan. I don't care. Just, you know, like one of the sort of, I'm using air quotes here, classical perspectives, and then give us the neuroanatomy and uh, neuropuncture overlay on this so we can get kind of a biocular view. The first one I'll talk about is how about Parkinson's, right? Oh. How about Parkinson's? Okay. Parkinson's is a hard thing to treat. Hard thing to treat, right? And, you know, what I always urge in my system and any practitioner that practices, even 21st, whoever's practicing right now, if we get a diagnosis, right, in 21st century medical sciences, we get to know the molecular aspects of our diagnosis, right? So embrace that. 
right? Let's find out what is the pathophil mechanism of those diagnoses. So when we look at Parkinson's, we looked at it's a basal ganglia dysfunction, right? The dopamine generic system, the dopamine system in the brain is dysfunctioning and it's causing a, a movement disorder. And we can go into the actual patho mechanisms of that, but, you know, in short, you know, the prefrontal cortex will think, you know, let's move. And it goes from the prefrontal cortex to the basal ganglia to the motor cortex and then down the spine and moves the leg. And that's why Parkinson's kind of, they hesitate before they go because the prefrontal cortex will shoot that neural thought. And then the basal ganglia gets stuck because it's, it's, it's atrophy and the dopamine isn't working. So it's, it's hesitant before it can fire to the motor cortex and people kind of stutter. We know that now. Beautiful, right? That is the issue that's wrong with our patients, right? And in TCM, we classically will look at that as maybe liver wind with some phlegm uh, accumulation that's missed in the mind or uh, obstructing the channels, right? So what I always have looked at in the past is, you know, we can have probably five different pattern differentiations for Parkinson's, right? And you can go about treating it that way with your patient. You know, that's fine. But there came a point in my professional career where I started to ask my question, what if, right? You know, this patient's coming to me with Parkinson's. The big trouble question. How do I know I'm actually helping them? I mean, let's be real, right? I mean, this is like an ethical and I think a very moral question to ask ourselves. If you're Based on an energetic model, someone's coming to you with Parkinson's or stroke or diabetes or hypertension or chronic pain or anything, there's, I think, a responsibility we have that we have to take this and really make sure we're helping our patients. So now the 2,500 years ago terminologies of chi, yin, yang, phlegm, damp, you know, we know now exactly what's going on with that condition. Now, the interesting overlap is, is this. So we want to do in TCM, maybe liver wind with some dampness, right? So classical points for that are liver three and gallbladder 34. What we use actually in neuropuncture is a two-point prescription. This is, we have multiple prescriptions, but one, one basic one we use for Parkinson's is gallbladder 34, and we call it the deep peroneal neuropuncture point. That's liver three. Because when you look at research, and research will support this, that acupuncture points are not points. There are regions that target regions of nerves that then communicate with regions of the brain. So it's not a point, right? And there's been tests to really confirm. You know, I know that it, at least in my training, you know, of course you have to learn to locate the point for your test, but in clinic, you have to locate where that point is on that particular patient at that moment in time. Right, right, right. If you want to be effective. Absolutely. And then there's needle depth that's important, right? That's very important, right? Engage of the needle, dotchy sensation, how they're feeling it. That's all transmitting signals to the human, to the body, right? To the central nervous system. So gallbladder 34, liver three. Well, what I do, great points in TCM, but how do we stimulate them? That's very important. So what we do in neuropuncture is we use four hertz millicurrent on those points. Why? Because we found out, it's confirmed with research, at four hertz, it targets the tyrosine hydroxynase enzyme in the brain. And you might ask me, why is that important? Because the tyrosine is a substrate of dopamine. And by releasing more tyrosine hydroxynase, you're going to break down more tyrosine to produce more dopamine. And that's why liver 3 and gallbladder 34 are great points for Parkinson's. If they're stimulated properly, 
with the right frequency, you can actually manipulate receptors in the brain that actually correlate to Parkinson's. Now, how did you guys find this kind of thing out? This is some super medicine-y, geeky. I mean, how do you figure this kind of thing out? Wong D didn't know about this. Well, you know what? I'll tell you this. Okay, we'll go into Huato in a second, Michael, because I got a great conversation on that. But I'll tell you this. I never thought myself as a geek. I always thought myself as a non-geek, but maybe I am a geek. I didn't think that. But now I think I geek out on this stuff. You know, I really do. But I don't mind it because I love it. I love this stuff. I love neuroscience. I love acupuncture. And I love merging them together and opening up really what are the maximum applications to this wonderful system. So I would say that, how do we figure that out? Well, there's a lot of research now that confirms this, right? There's functional MRI studies and research that I pull from in a lot of societies and platforms I'm involved in that I can gather research on that are private and look at a lot of different protocols and come to a nice, concise decision. But I got a great story for you. I was doing a lecture with Dr. Ayla Wolf, right? She's a functional neurologist. She's awesome, right? Anyone who's worked with her, formerly known as a- Amy Wolf, she's an amazing functional neurologist, right? And we co-taught a little lecture at a symposium a couple of years ago. And she spoke first and talked about Parkinson's and how she tests this with functional neurology, find out what tracks in the brain are damaged and how to target those areas of the brain. And she was saying that she was needling gallbladder 34 and liver three because they're classic points for acupuncture. She was using an e-stem and what she decided to put it on four hertz. And the reason she chose four hertz because she says it was the frequency at which the patient's tremor was oscillating at. So she picked four hertz and she said, once she put it on four hertz, the tremor slowed down. So that just supported all the research and the stuff we do in neuropuncture. And again, that TCM classical model shows you, yeah, gallbladder 34 and, and, and liver three are classical points for for Parkinson's, but now we know exactly why and how to stimulate those points to absolutely affect the brain and help an actual Parkinson's patient. That's a fantastic story. And what it also says to me, and this is one of the, I think one of the real joys of, of doing this kind of medicine, we have to learn to rely on our own sensibilities, our own observation and our own ability to ask these questions like, oh, they're tremoring. Oh, they're tremoring like what? Oh, they're tremoring like this. Oh, what is that? Oh, it's this wavelength. What if I try that? What if? I love that question of yours. What if? What if I try that? I mean, we do this all the time. Many times we fail in our clinic. It's like, well, what if I do this? Oh, that didn't help at all. But sometimes we come across that thing and it it really knocks it out of the park. It clicks. Yeah, yeah. it clicks. Now we're down a whole new pathway. What I found in, in neuropuncture is we call it Bushido in neuropuncture. Bushido is that Japanese samurai mindset of perfection, right? Everything must be perfect. That's what I always try to install in my practitioners. Every insertion, every needle depth, every e-stem, every time you turn it on and, and the patient feels it's that comfortable tapping sensation. And I think that is very important for that consistency. I think that's really important. I know you're going to get into another one here. You got you said you had something about Huato, and I want to get into that in a moment. You were talking about e-stem. I'd like to get just a little bit into electroacupuncture because this is one of those areas. I remember having a class in it, you know, 20 plus years ago, totally didn't get it. And I've talked to different people about electroacupuncture and there's this part of me, it's like, I just don't get it. 
Yeah, I get it. I understand that. I understand why, because we were, no one still does. Very little people teach correct electrical acupuncture. I think well, I'm I mean, I don't even few. know how to think about it. Right. Cause I, and I've even been, I mean, I remember traveling at one point and I had a thing with my shoulder and I, you know, went to some practitioners and it was like, oh yeah, we'll put some needles in. They were going to crank some electricity on it. And, you know, even though I'm an acupuncturist, I'm like, so what big deal? And sometimes it helped and sometimes it didn't. So I'd love to hear from you because you're kind of into this stuff. What is electroacupuncture doing? And a follow-up to that, I'm going to throw too much at you maybe, but it's like, what is it with the different frequencies? And then there's these like different wave shapes. Some are like square, some are like round. Can you give me just like a electroacupuncture for dummies quickie on this? Well, I don't know about a quickie, but... uh. Okay, so there are three truths of acupuncture. I talk about neuropuncture. The first one, and these are truths I think everyone needs to really come into grips with. The first one is acupuncture is neuroscience. Stop denying it. The research is just a mountain load to confirm the functional MRI studies, the EMG studies, the receptor targeting, the release of peptides, the specificity on how to target regions of the brain with frequencies. Why? Because it's all neuroscience. So the second thing is that most of the research will conclude, depending on certain cases, but mostly, especially in pain, that electrical acupuncture is superior than manual acupuncture. Okay, so acupuncture is neuroscience, electrical acupuncture is superior, has electrical acupuncture worked? The third truth is that electrical acupuncture works by neuromodulating, neuroregulating, or neurorehabilitating the nervous system back into health. So we can use electricity just like manual stimulation, but with an electrical apparatus like the Pantheon that is FDA approved, very safe we can really quantify the exact amount of stimulation, the frequency, the current, the waveform, the time frame, And then what we can do with that is we can send that signal when we know what point we're stimulating. We know exactly where that signal is going to be transmitted and how it's going to be translated because of neuroanatomy, right? If I needle LI4 and I e-stem that, well, I know if my patient feels a sensation, well, that's only, and it has to occur if that needle with that estem is stimulating the superficial radial nerves, the afferent fibers hitting the radial nerve, running up the brachial plexus, entering about C5 and terminating in the thalamus. And we know that actually at LI4 that we can use different frequencies because that transmission running along that pathway has receptors at different areas that we can target with different frequencies. So different frequencies are going to give you different clinical effects because you're stimulating different, maybe endocrinological sorts of interactions, or you're stimulating certain nerve pathways? Both. So what we do is this. In neuropuncture, we call that the dosage, right? So we have a prescription, which is the point protocol, and then there's the dosage. And the dosage includes frequency, current, time frame, uh, waveform, all that stuff. And when we look at that dosage, right, if we use millicurrent versus microcurrent, Michael, that's going to have different effects on the tissues. If I use two Hertz versus a hundred, that's going to have different effects on the receptors. And we can literally, depending on points as well, and I'll give a great example on that, but depending on the point, 
We can literally target, and this is what neuropuncture is all about. This is all mapped out. We can target regions of the brain. So if I want to target the benzodiazepine receptors in the cortical nucleus tractus solitaris of the midbrain, we can do that. If I want to target a dopamine system in the brain, we can do that. The serotonin, the pituitary, the Wait a minute. Are you, are, you, are you saying that you've got the acupuncture Xanax? Yes, actually, yes, yes, yes. And what's great about this, this is the third book I'm working on right now with one of my certified practitioners, is all case studies in neuropunction. This was actually her idea because she's just so blown away. Her practice has exploded. She's only hiring those practitioners that are in Neurolab studying with me because neuropuncture has such a profound effect on her. She's been practicing for like 30 years, so she's a veteran practitioner from China. And she wants to just put, help me put a book together on case studies, because when you see this stuff and how effective it is, it just confirms that an acupuncture is neuromodulation and electricity really helps to, to support those healthy neuroplastic changes in the brain. Right? Cool. So, so back to the electricity. Yes. Waveform. Talk to me about waveform. This, this is one of those things. Um, years ago, I had a Pantheon device, amazing devices. Um, in fact, John Hubacher, uh, just recently on the podcast. So you oh, nice. go back and catch that episode. But waveforms, t- talk to me about waveforms, because I totally don't understand this. Okay. So I'm actually very close with John. We're involved in some groundbreaking research together. We've been involved in research for probably, I guess, almost three to five years now together. And he is awesome. And he's the one that helps explain things to me when I don't know them about electricity and the signature that these devices produce and with the history of it as well. So not to get too confusing, but most of all of our electrical acupuncture devices produce a square biphasic wave form. And the reason why they produce a square biphasic waveform is because the original FDA 510K approval for electrical acupuncture devices was created in the 1970s very, I don't want to say haphazardly, but first thrown out with a biphasic square waveform for safety measures. And since then, it hasn't been changed because it costs like a million dollars to get the application into the FDA and to produce and show them the efficacy and the safety of different waveforms. Okay, so let's start with that. That a square waveform biphasic is usually good for every machine if it's a FDA approved device and there are triangle waveforms, sine waveforms and different waveforms that are on the market that some machines say they produce. Now I say, say they produce because Michael, this is a really hot and very important topic to me because there's only, and this is really kind of sad. And this is the truth though. I think there's only three devices, three companies with only three devices that are actually FDA approved for electrical acupuncture. There are devices on the market that are sold and told that, oh yeah, this is an electrical acupuncture device. It's not FDA approved for electrical acupuncture. I've looked it up. It's FDA approved for TENS, which means if one of our practitioners uses that device and causes some irritation on a nerve or skin or hurts a patient, and then that practitioner gets sued, I'm sure that you know, that lawyer that is suing them is going to do a little work onto the machine they use. And it's going to find out it's not an FDA approved for electrical acupuncture. 
So you have to be careful with that, that some devices are telling acupuncturists, oh yeah, this has a square, this is a triangle, this has a sign, and da, 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 da. But is that even in our FDA approval scope for us to be using things like that? Well, that's a great question. And it sounds like an important consideration. If I'm understanding this correctly, the only form that's been approved is this biphasic square. So if a machine has other things in it, say a sine wave or the triangle, is this out of FDA approval? Would people be on potentially shaky ground if something happened with that? Yeah, I'd say they would definitely be on potentially shaky ground. And I also, most importantly, and this is really where it all really comes into me, where's the efficacy? There's, I've, I've, trust me, I dive into this research. John and I have dove into this research. I'm big into neuromodulation, as you can imagine. So I'm part of societies. I look up research all the time. I got three wonderful flat screens in my office. I'm always looking at things. And it's hard to find different waveforms that affect sensory afferent nerves. There's not much research out there. So the real, real question is, what are those triangle waves even doing to your patient? What is the sine wave really doing? Is it doing anything different than what the square waveform is? I don't know. Could be doing the same. Could not be. Could be maybe not necessarily polarizing the pathways. Could so maybe- in your work then, you're basically using the square waveform. Yeah, we all we always use. And in research, John is the one that's producing and making the uh, devices for us. Uh, unless we're working on a special project where we have special FDA clearance to use different waveforms which we're using right now and we're, we're testing. So you're uh, doing research on some of these, this other stuff. Yes, we are. But uh-huh. even when we conclude the research, even after that, we have investors that we're working with because it's like a million dollar project still to push that through the FDA to get them to okay it for us to make a device and sell it to our profession. So there's a long pathway to it. But that's why when I see these devices on the market and people are boasting, oh, this is a you know, triangle waveform in it, you know, and it tonifies chi. What does that even mean? Where are you getting this from? Tell me what chi is that you're talking about, first of all. And and then that's why I love, like, you hear, like, some electrical acupuncture systems. People are saying, well, you use, like, two hertz on these points, and that floods the meridian with endorphins. Oh, which meridian are you talking about? Please tell me where you found it and show me some research that really identifies with that because that's all ludicrous. And you got to keep it real. Okay. <laughs> In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles 
at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. And get yourself an FDA-approved machine. Yes, I think that's really important. Good idea. What about microcurrent, millicurrent? Okay, a lot lot goes on with that. In the neuropuncture system, we use them very specifically, okay? And what we usually just very, I'll just give a nice big, big overlap with this because, again, I don't want to give too much clinical stuff out because I don't want anyone not using it properly. If you have any questions, shoot me an email. I mean, obviously, on my online platform, I teach all this. But in short, microcurrent, millicurrent, they have different effects on the tissue. And what we look at is pulse widths that can affect the nerve polarization. And that means that we want to do that. When our patients are in pain, when there's any internal organic or visceral pathology, there are neurological signals that are being transmitted to the central nervous system. The nervous system is responding back. You know, maybe it can't correct the problem. And that's where we have to step in, modulate the system so that the signals get cleared up and then it corrects the pathology. And with microcurrent and millicurrent, we use them in very specific cases. Microcurrent tends to be better for healing tissues as millicurrent seems to be better at, because I always look at it as a larger kind of current, it's better at hitting receptors and targeting spinal reflexes and regions of the brain. That's a good little layaway if you want to jump into hot tub. Great. Yeah. No, that, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. It would be a great segue. And thank you because this is super helpful. Now I've, now I've got some distinction that I can work with. Yeah. And then just always keep in mind that these, that these are frequent specific as well, right? So microcurrent specific frequency and then millicurrent specific frequencies have all that wonderful ability to, to really specifically target regions of this nervous system. So if you wanted to help a woman who has cystic ovaries, for example, yep. you would be using more of a micro than a millicurrent because you, you want to get in there and make some changes deeper in the system. Well, it depends. You know, and this yeah. is what the system is, right? So you are a Chinese medicine person. The answer is it depends. <laughs> it depends, right? Exactly. <laughs> and that's like rule. That's that's the first part in neuropuncture is if we have a diagnosis, let's look at that neuropathology. And then how do we affect that tissue that's pathological? Can we send electricity there to heal it? Can we send signals there to send chemicals there to balance it? Or is it atrophied where it needs some like rehabilitation? It needs to kind of get stronger again, right? Flex it kind of. Right. So we're, we're talking differential diagnosis in a whole different sphere with a whole different mental construct, but we're still talking differential diagnosis. What's excess, what's deficient. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that's what I call the neuropuncture mindset. And I know that some practitioners and we, I've had great conversations with at conferences and at workshops, what I'm bringing forward to, to our profession can be a little, not alarming, but maybe like, oh, you know, this is so different and foreign to me. Think of it this way, guys. You have to remember that everything we're, we've learned and we're taught our master's and doctorate degrees right now is really 2,500-year-old language, right? And that is beautiful. The philosophy is amazing. But let's not take away from the 21st century medical sciences we have right now and really examine the body. And I think that is so quintessential. And again, Hua Tho, you know, really did this stuff. Don't think they didn't. Don't think in the Hua, you know, in the Huangdi Neijing, think about the organs, the names, 
have not changed, right? Shin is still Shin, right? Faye is how did the, the, the Oregon names have not changed in over 3,000 years because they nailed it. Even the locations they were doing dissections. So they were doing that. And this energetic model, which could be another awesome discussion we could have in a couple minutes, but the energetic model, unfortunately, really threw a curveball in our profession. And I think with the jump into the 70s with psychedelics and the Western culture after World War II being such a predominant factor in the world and force in the world really steered things in a much different direction. But now we're getting back on track. Okay. And I could give you many examples of me going to China and them wanting to learn neuropuncture because they don't look at it like that anymore. And they're kind of circling back to neuroscience because they realize that. Well, let's hear about Huato. Okay. All right. So let me ask you this, Michael. Do you know what year Huato kind of was around on the earth? You know, I don't. I just remember this story and he was like the first guy who did surgery and, you know, he's like one of the, you know, he's in the pantheon of, you know, Chinese medicine, Marvel comic characters, so to Scholars, speak. Scholars. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. But, you know, beyond that, no. Of course. Right. No. And then that's, that's no, obviously, uh, you know, that's not bad on you or anything. That's just, you know, I think a lot of our practitioners are, don't go into the history of it so much, but I do because I want to know where he got this, where, what was his mindset like, right? If we use that energetic model, we're stuck in that. And we look at what Huateau was doing. We're going to have a certain perception and belief or idea of how he functioned. So but you're, then you're doing like a Malcolm Gladwell here, right? You're like, you're going to like pull together a couple different things and show us how it's connected. Yes. When did he live and what were his influences? I right, check this out. Okay. So Huato lived around 180 AD, AD, 180 AD. So what I think about, okay, what was going on 180 AD? And I did a nice dive into the historical world at that time. So what was going on in the Roman empire? right? Was that, you know, was doing really well. And there was a surgeon in the Roman empire at the exact time of Huato at the Eastern border of the Roman empire. He was trained in Rome and he practiced in the outskirts of the Eastern Roman empire in Syria area in Turkey. And he was a gladiatorial surgeon. His name was Galen. Have you ever heard of Galen? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Galen is a, yeah. I mean, he's, he's an art pantheon of, of medical practitioners. Exactly. In, in the West. Absolutely. So when Galen was around, Huato was around. What was Galen looking at that world, right? Well, let's first start that, you know, at that area, he was a, a Roman uh, gladiatorial surgeon. And basically- That he meant he was get- a super badass with surgery. Super. And he drew anatomical drawings and structures of the greater auricular nerve, the brachial plexus, the vagus nerve, the corpus callosum of the brain, the pituitary gland. He knew so many, like he knew his stuff. And he even knew the difference between an afferent and efferent nerve. If he knew anatomy that well, and he was doing dissections that well, it behooves us to think that Huato didn't have that same understanding of anatomy, maybe more. And then when you look at what did Huato create, the Huato Jaji points, which were the classical back shoe points, we know that this exiting spinal nerves of those organs are very identical to the back shoe points. We know that when we needle into a back shoe point, that neurological transmission passes over, enters the spinal segment at that level, and is going to affect the visceral nerve as well. So there's a little reflex in the spine. 
called a muscular visceral reflex, muscle organ reflex. So when you put a needle in a myotome or in a muscle where the dermatome is going to send that transmission to a specific spinal segment, and if that spinal segment also is innervated by an organ, that transmission is going to run on the same reflex as that organ. Right. They're running on the same wires. Same wires. And they communicate to the brain on the same tracks. So what we're doing is we're going to activate that spinal reflex through back shoe points, through other dermatome points. And you asked about ovarian issues, right? So when you're treating reproductive uh, patients or reproductive uh, problems on women, classical points, REN4, REN3, Zigong Shui, Stomach 29, those are all on dermatones of the same visceral organs of the fallopian tubes, uterus, and ovaries. It's not a coincidence. They may not have known their spinal reflexes, but when they're needling, they notice that they're fixing those organs. It's not chi. It's not mystical pathways or invisible lines or this. No, they're stimulating little neurons. They're firing the reflex. That's communicating with the organs and communicating with the brain to create homeostasis. So Huateau didn't see those reflexes, but observed them. And he nailed it. Don't tell me he wasn't doing dissections because all those back shoe points correlate very closely to every organ. The kidney's off a little bit. It's on the lower branch. And the heart isn't just one. It's like T, it's like T4 or T7. There's like a branch, right, that we can really target organs now using the spinal segments. All that we know now for a fact, that's how we're affecting visceral function. And there's no way a doctor could tell us or anyone else that we can't affect visceral function. You want to make a bet? Have you ever heard of muscular visceral reflex? The doctors would be like, oh yeah, I do. Where am I sticking my needle? Into the muscle, muscle visceral. Oh yeah. So when that hits that spinal segment along that transmissional pathway, we're going to affect the visceral function. Absolutely. And we can absolutely modify that. And Tuato definitely knew that and observed it. And that's why I think this is all neuroscience. Absolutely. And it's supported with the history. Do you have many Western doctors come and study this stuff with you? Because, I mean, this, the languaging and the thought and, you know, all of this so connects with our Western way of thinking. Yeah. Yes, I do. I do. I have DOs, MDs, DCs that train with me. Um, I accept physicians and licensed acupuncturists, obviously LACs. In my platform, I have practice from all around the world that log in and work with me. Um, doctors love my stuff. Physicians like Kairos love my stuff. It's great. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure they do. That. I mean, given the way that they see the world through the nervous system. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, in Chinese medicine, it's so often patients ask me, well, does this have to do with my nerves? Are you like working on my nerves to make this work? And in and, and my mind, because I haven't studied your stuff, right? I'm just learning something about it today. I think about, oh, nerves are kind of connected to the kidney, but from a classical Chinese medicine point of view, we don't even look at nerves. We're, we're looking at all kinds of other stuff. It's really fun having this overlay. This reminds me, like when I was a kid, I feel so sorry for kids these days because, you know, we had the World Book Encyclopedia. You probably had one too, right? And you had that one issue, right, where's the body and like there's the bones and you put an overlay on it and there's the oh, blood yes, vessels uh, and you put the overlay on it and there's the nervous system, which, man, I, I could look at that stuff for hours on a Sunday afternoon. I just love that. What I'm hearing you do is you're putting this nerve layer on top of everything else that we've got. 
Absolutely. You know, Michael, and, and I think what you mentioned is an unfortunate fact. We're not taught this in schools. And I have graduates or senior students contacting me like, why are my teachers teaching me this? It's, you know, it, it really is just right now. I think we're slowly getting into it more. And it's been, you know, a long investment of myself and other practitioners like Matt Callison, who's worked his life into neuroanatomy and muscular neurojunctions and the anatomy of acupuncture and how that correlates to classical TCM, like what I'm doing with neuroscience. And it should be taught. And that's why, like, I named, I even renamed the points. And I know that some practitioners are like, he's even renaming the points. Well, why do I do that? Because when you're needling Naguan, pericardium six, you are needling it with the only intention to not puncture, but stimulate the median nerve. And the owner nerve is heart seven, and the superficial radial nerve is LI4. So if you're needling it, because when I was taught, and this is no disrespect to my teachers, because this is what was taught and understood back then, that acupuncture points were these vortexes of energy. Awesome. That's so cool. And I'm putting the needle into that. No, you're not. You're sticking it into a muscle, which has nervous tissue, and you don't want to puncture the nerve. And if you look at China and how they teach, that's what they teach. They teach the anatomical structures that you're needling into. It's not this invisible, you know, you know, vortex or a circle that you're trying to stimulate and manipulate some invisible energy. It's not at all. They don't teach it that way. I think it's important that all of our practitioners really own that. And it makes us better practitioners, better conversations with our patients and healthcare providers, you know? Well, it's kind of cool that you're renaming the points that include your perspective for understanding better how to use your perspective. When you look at the names of the points in Chinese, often they're talking about the function of the point. If you actually know the name of the point in Chinese, you already know what to do with it. It's not, it's not like, oh, it's this you know, magical thing. No, it, it tells you, right? You want to deal with fluid metabolism. Well, REN11, Shreifun is really, no, um, actually REN11 is, uh, it's build the interior. You know, it's another one of these points that's like super helpful for digestion. So what I'm hearing you do is you're, you're taking and naming it's them on in the a way. tone of the stomach, right? Exactly. That's why it's good for digestion. You needle that, you're going to be stimulating those little visceral reflexes. So if you have gastritis, that's sending dysfunctional reflexes through that little reflex, but you needle REN11, that's going to interrupt that signal. There you go. So the other thing I think is really interesting, and this is one of the things I find fascinating about Chinese medicine, Chinese medicine is a little bit like the Borg right? It's got some stuff and it uses it and then it comes across something else and it goes, Ooh, this is helpful. We're going to add this in too, right? Over the years, it's, it, it's been added to, you talk about why are people not studying this? Why haven't they been taught? Well, cause no one's been out there to like notice these particular kinds of interactions and to bring that nervous overlay that you're talking about and put it on and be able to talk about it in the way that you are one foot in the classics, one foot in modern science. So thank you for your work on this. That's like super helpful. It gives us another perspective and a way of thinking about things with the technology that we have. Thank God for functional MRIs, right? Oh my gosh. It's amazing. So one really cool thing about functional MRIs, Guangming. Do you know Guangming? Gallbladder 37, right? Bright eye. Well, functional MRI has proven and confirmed needling Guangming and stimulating with like two hertz millicurrent, the visual cortex in the brain gets activated and lights up. 
So again, did the Chinese know there was a neural pathway that activated the visual cortex? No, but they observed that needle in Guangming, and this is such a tremendous observation, that it actually helped eye conditions. Now we know that'll really help eye conditions as a result of damage to the visual cortex, maybe not the optic nerve, right? Because we know our medicine better now. We know our science is better now. If a patient comes with, let's say, macro degeneration or, or glaucoma, that's not a visual cortex issue, right? You could do all the guangming you want. You got to affect the eye, right? The pressure in the eye and the nerves of the eye, right? So that's, that's the way you can really direct your treatment and get a lot better outcome. You mentioned macular degeneration. I want to dig into this for a moment because I've got a couple of patients. I'm involved in some great research with that right now. Talk to, talk to me a little bit about macular degeneration. How can we help? So what we're looking at right now is first thing, we're not actually, we're trying to get away from the macular degeneration term because, you know, there's no treatments for it. The only treatments that are available right now are vitamin injections in the eye where they have to go once a month. I think it's like $1,600 or $1,500 a month. It's expensive, no guarantee. They usually don't work. So there's definitely a need for a good treatment for it. That's a plus, right? And what we're using is a particular protocol that Dr. Richard Nimtsau, the creator and founder of Battlefield Acupuncture in the military, we're involved with two research projects with him right now, one in the military, one in civilian. And we are using an electrical acupuncture prescription that he created using his understanding of electrical grids and neuroscience, which I love. It's not points. It's not meridian. It's not chi. It has nothing to do with any of that. He, it's a three-point prescription, actually. And so far to date, we have had some very, very positive and strong responses from our patients. So we did a little pilot study just to test the parameters and see one of the equipments we're using. We're using a digital axillary grid. I think it's axillary grid for the eye uh, reading. One of the patients was a grandmother. And when we treated her, the next day she came back for the follow-up treatment, Michael, and she said, told us that for the first time she saw her great-grandchild's face because she was never able to see the detail. And that was just with one treatment. So we're involved in some great treatment. I can't go over the prescription yet because of non-disclosure agreements, and we're still working on it. And the technique is going to have to be taught because it's some sensitive needling. But, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me, though. Because of my understanding of neuroscience, my understanding of neuroscience acupuncture, my understanding of electrical sciences applying to acupuncture, absolutely. I, I'm so excited with this project. We're going to have something really concrete, I think. And I'm hoping to align myself and I'm going in that direction to be the point man to be teaching our profession in America that procedure. Because uh, after the research all concluded, we're going to be getting it out to the world. And there's going to be one branch teaching medical doctors and one branch teaching acupuncturists. And I'll be taking care of the acupuncturists. So I'm looking forward to that. You've got like an empire here. Yeah, absolutely, baby. You got to do it, right? Only live once. <laughs> Have you absolutely. got a note from your father to do this? Or no, wait, you're over eighteen. You can you can do whatever you want. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you can't you can't hold me back. That's great. Cool. Yeah, it's crazy. Anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wind this down for today? Well, um, another awesome event that I uh, am one of the founding fathers in and something we organize is the Neuroscience Acupuncture Summit. And it's a annual summit that we organize for strictly neuroscience acupuncture speakers. 
And every year we have special presenters and special keynote speakers. This year, uh, we have the four founding fathers, which is Dr. Ayla Wolf, functional neurology, myself teaching neuropuncture. This year, I'm actually going over spinal reflexes and spinal tracks because there's this awesome new research I'm in right now that is giving us just a lot of application to target specific tracks in the spinal cord now. So that's exciting. Uh, Dr. Andy Rosenfarb for neuro-ophthalmology and Dr. Clay Shu for cerebral uh, brain injuries and things like that. And then we have Matt Kalson doing a full day SMAC program. And then we have Dr. Uh, Carrick from the Carrick Institute doing a big discussion as our keynote speaker on functional neurology. He's the founder of functional neurology. And uh, it's going to be a wonderful uh, event. And it's every year annually. And this year it's April 3rd and 5th. And I would recommend not rushing when you go to that this year, you want to go, that's great. But every year, just keep an eye on that because I think next year we're trying to have a big brain dissection in it. And then the year after that, Matt and I are going to probably collaborate on some dissections. Um, and it's just a really great event. It really is an awesome, awesome event. So, but besides that, especially if you're a neuroscience team, geek, if you're a neuroscience geek, yeah. put yeah. on the gloves, head on Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Get in there. It's just really great stuff. Where can people find you on the internet? So I have a, a couple spots. You can see me. My, uh, my main website is neuropuncture.org where you'll, I'm actually redoing all that. And it's going to be neuropuncture.com soon. I bought that domain, but check that out. I have a lot of my, uh, you know, workshop schedules there, my certification program, but I also have, which is really nice is an online training platform. So anyone around the country, around the world, people have my books. They take my healthy seminar uh, webinars. This is all updated. I have over 50 live recorded webinars from all the neurophysiological mechanisms, case studies, specialty departments of interest like orthopedics, pain medicine, infertility, women's health, neurodegenerative diseases, cardiology, plus 50 short webinar or videos on needle location, point prescription, how to use the Pantheon, research is up there. I have case submission forms, podcasts. Okay, I That's get it. So I got, I got one last question for you. Go ahead. Do you sleep? <laughs> you know, I am blessed with an awesome girlfriend who's my fiance. She's awesome. We both have a very full life and we don't have kids. So, you know, I put all my life into this and all my energy. And I think that really people get when they have kids, like, yeah, that's a huge demand. I don't have that. So I just, this is, this is, this is your baby. This is my children. Cool. <laughs> Michael, I really appreciate your time today. I especially appreciate that little lesson in electroacupuncture. I feel like I understand it better. Maybe I'll even uh, dip my toe back into it. Now that I feel like I've got a little foothold on it. And uh, thank you for your work. It's, it's super interesting. It's wonderful having a modern overlay to help us understand our ancient medicine. And uh, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Michael. That was a pleasure. Appreciate it very much. Well, I have a whole new way of thinking about chi in the nervous system. It opens up the question for me of what is primary, structure or function? Maybe it's a bit of both. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the conversation today. You can leave your thoughts over on the Geological Facebook page. Hop on over and leave a comment. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that, 
It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.